Making everyone happy on vacation isn't easy. But you know what is? Going to Aruba. All you have to do is walk out your door to find pristine pools, relaxing white sand beaches, and an island teeming with outdoor activities that'll put a smile on any face. You won't just feel great, you'll all feel great. Filled with a calmer, more peaceful vibe that radiates Aruba's warmth. And the best part is, it never fades. That's the Aruba effect. Plan your family trip at aruba.com. All right, let's kick it. Happy Sober Day, friends, and welcome to the Sobriety Diaries. My name is Nate, and I'm a grateful recovering alcoholic. That may sound crazy, but I wouldn't be where I am and helping others without it. So for that, I am grateful. The Sobriety Diaries is a video podcast where we talk to other recovering alcoholics and addicts who hear their stories and hope to help others who may still be struggling. Don't forget to pop over to Instagram at the Sobriety Diaries pod to enter to win our content creator bundle giveaway. We will announce the winner on July 12th. But let's get down to the business at hand. Today, we are chatting with Kiana from Massachusetts. Hey, Kiana, how are you today? I am feeling wonderful this morning. How are you? Good. I love that you said, I am feeling wonderful. I am feeling wonderful too. It takes work sometimes, um, but I love that you said it that way. Kind of threw me off, but love it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for being uh, willing to share your story and uh, sort of open today. Uh, What made you decide to, to come and share your story with us? I have built a a career and a life out of sharing some of these really difficult, what some would call disgusting moments of our lives because people are too afraid to talk about them. So I spend a lot of time, you know, I love to read. I consider myself a scholar. And when I'm feeling like I need some encouragement, I will jump on to Reddit. I'm part of many sobriety communities um, throughout the forum. And it just so happened that the request for somebody to come and share their story was my top post that day that showed up on my homepage. And so it really struck my heart that somebody was out there using a forum like Reddit to kind of engage with people and let them know that there's hope in something that seems just so hopeless. It just happened for a reason, right? Absolutely. Yes. Do you feel like your sobriety is in jeopardy today? I do not. No. Amazing. Well, with that, let's open the diary on Kiana. Take it away, my friend. Thank you so much. Um, So my name is Kiana. I'm 30 years old, and my sobriety date is June 30th of 2015. And although I say that that is my sobriety date, that is honestly just the first day that I woke up and I chose recovery for good. There had been so many times that I had really sought something better for my, my life. You know, sometimes in addiction and in recovery, we don't see the small steps that it takes to get to this place where it appears as if this mountain is in front of us. And although it was the first day I woke up and said, you know, I think I've had enough. I think this is it. It was just the first day that I I looked at this mountain and said, maybe this is tangible. Maybe this is something that I can move. Maybe this is something that will look better eventually. So it wasn't easy. It was very difficult as I'm going to share with you. Um, but that was the first day I woke up and chose my life over just wanting to die. And, um, growing up, I, I was the product of two parents who were addicts. Um, my mother and father, 
were both heavily addicted to heroin and methamphetamines. Uh, it was the eighties, you know, the, the culture was running rampant and it was just kind of the scene that was happening. And so, um, my parents, they tried to provide a really, really good life for me, but addiction as, and, you know, alcoholism, as you know, is just a grip that doesn't seem to let loose. It just seems to get worse and worse. So at the time of when I was born, my parents had already been in and out of a couple different rehabs, detoxes, prisons. They have a long history of, uh, you know, long rap sheet. And I had an older sister. I have an older sister. And she kind of took over as my caregiver. By the time we were two and a half, we had been in a number of different foster homes, different family members that we had been shuffled around to. And none of these foster homes were great. They were all pretty much abusive. And I'm not talking about physical or sexual abuse. It's just really making a child feel very inhumane, almost like an animal to be obedient, to listen to what was being asked of us. And when we weren't, there were there were certainly consequences. You know, we were treated kind of like the dog on the back porch. And I think that that struck a very deep root somewhere in my life. You know, that's where the feelings of not not feeling good enough, being insecure, wanting to gain so much approval from other people. We just didn't have a stable home environment. Fortunately, when I was four, my great aunt and uncle took me in. And at the time they were 56, 57, I was four years old. They were living on a pension. My uncle who took me in was a retired police lieutenant. My aunt that took me in was a school nurse. And here's a child that they have never met in their entire life from you know their niece who they had heard was addicted. And they took me in with, with open and welcoming arms and they provided the best life for me that anybody could have asked for. You know, they loved me. They, from a very young age, they supported any dream that I had. I was a very gifted child. I started doing Broadway across America, Broadway off Broadway when I was four. And I continued to pursue and succeed very much, particularly in the entertainment industry. And as a child and being so gifted, you know, I stuck out like a sore thumb. I got made fun of a lot by kids in my grade. And, you know, they would tell me things like I was ugly or I was fat or that I couldn't sing which is fine as an adult looking back, but as a child, I didn't realize that that was just another piece of wanting to be accepted that was being instilled a little bit deeper in me. It was being reinforced. And when I was about six, um, I still hadn't been back with my mother. When I was about six, I found out that my father had actually been deported to Canada. To this day, you know, I now am beginning to have a relationship with him, but that kind of seemed to be the final straw. That was kind of the final moment where I realized, even as a young child, that maybe life was never going to go back to that. Maybe I was never going to live with my mother. Maybe my sister and I, you know, she was living in a different household at the time. Maybe we wouldn't be a family again. Maybe this was never going to happen. So my aunt and uncle, who at this point had had me for about four years, um, they decided to take permanent guardianship and they did, you know, they, they put me through the best schools. I went to a private high school. Um, my junior year in high school, I entered a competition to take part in a female girl group. And although at the time I was signed to 
the label with this girl group, we were dropped very, very quickly about a month later. It was devastating for me because I had worked so hard my entire life to find an identity in something. You know, I had found it in performance. I had found it in my friends. I had found it in the way I looked, particularly because of the way that the industry, you know, had kind of made me think. I fought so hard for the acceptance and recognition of other people because I was so insecure. I had a stable home life, but the damage was already done. Because this dream was kind of ripped out of my hands, I felt at the last minute, I chose to go to college instead. You know, my parents were, were I call them my parents now because they, they have raised all these years. So they, they sacrificed, they pinched pennies, they, you know, emptied out their retirement to be able to send me to some of the best colleges. I went to Northeastern University where I got a degree in behavioral neuroscience. And it was actually my senior year that I just woke up one day and I don't even know how it happened. You know, I went to a party my sophomore year when I was at Northeastern and I was never a drinker. I didn't get drunk. I didn't smoke weed. I didn't do any types of drugs. But here I was at a party with these new people who I just wanted so badly to integrate with. I wanted friends. I wanted a support system and I felt so alone. I was coming out of a long-term breakup and somebody had asked me, you know, I think I'm going to pick up a pee. And I, you know, I don't, I'm naive. I don't know what that means. Like, yeah. I, I didn't know the terminology. I'm but sitting here. I'm sitting here waiting for, for you to tell me what it is. <laughs> so, <laughs> so P was a term for Percocet, um, Percocet or Roxycodone 30 milligram. Yeah. And the thing about prescription drugs and the thing about alcohol is that they are so widely accepted for a number of different reasons. You know, the first time that I sat down and, and tried Percocet, nobody said to me, hey, this is legal heroin. This is literally almost the same exact compound. This is an opiate. It is highly addictive. I had no idea. I was thought maybe I was taking like, I mean, not that I had ever done Xanax, but I thought maybe I was taking something just to calm me down. But here I was at a party and I tried it and I... I felt like I understood just in that brief moment what my mother had felt all those years. And you know, it's it's interesting because that wasn't the beginning of my addiction. I mean, it was probably the first time that I did use, but I didn't receive any type of addictive behaviors after that. It was probably six, seven, eight months later that I woke up one day and I said, hmm, I wonder if that girl that I was at that party with knows where I can get some of these pills. And you know, I'm six years out from here and I look back at the season and, and they say that there's always a moment of, of where that trauma began. There, there's a defining characteristic a lot of the time. And you know, I had a lot of damage from my early life, but looking back, I realized that that first weekend that I moved to Northeastern, I had gone to a party, I had been roofied and I had been assaulted. And for the next like two and a half years, I literally couldn't remember like anything. I had worked at different establishments with people I saw every day, only years later to be looking at their pictures saying, I, I recognize you, but I don't know where from, you know, to the point where I was almost embarrassed and had to reach out to some of these people and say, I can place you somewhere. I'm not really sure where. And they would tell me like, hey, you worked with me for two years at who knows in Boston, or you attended my church, or you had been in one of my classes. And I was able to draw it all the way back to that first week at Northeastern where I had been roofied and date raped, really, at a party. And suddenly I wake up my senior year, you know, I'm finishing my degree. And somehow 
I was shooting up 30 times a day. I had gone from doing a pill one time in the North End to over the next year and a half, having complete memory loss from PTSD and realizing that I was completely broken, totally strung out. And I was calling my parents on, you know, on my way to my first rehab. And of course, you know, just because you realize that you have a problem doesn't mean that you're ready to get sober. It's just kind of like a realization of, oh, wow, this is a problem. And so, you know, I wasn't ready to get sober. I didn't even know what sobriety was. I was still having a hard term coming to grips with the fact that though I had a needle in my arm 30 times a day, that I wasn't addicted. I could stop at any point. Like this was just me getting through the season. So I go to my first rehab, I get kicked out because I'm, I'm drug seeking. And then I go to my second rehab and although I finished it, my staff was very um, encouraging to tell me not to go back home. You know, you don't want to go back to the same people, places, the same situations. So her being from California, she was from San Francisco. And at the time I had strictly had an opiate addiction. I chose to go to a sober living in San Francisco. And if you know anything about San Francisco, it is expensive. <laughs> it is very expensive. They have a great recovery community. Their 12-step communities are world-renowned. This is like the hub of the United States. This is where people go, get into the 12-step into the programs, really into the community. But I realized very quickly that I was in the community because I wanted community. It wasn't because I wanted sobriety. And so I began to find myself integrating with people who also weren't there for sobriety community. They were just there for community. Suddenly it became, you know, a who's dating who and what were the hottest meetings and, you know, who was the best speaker who had, you know, the most powerful story that could get you to, you know, cry. And I realized very quickly that, um, that I was again lonely. I was seeking affirmation and relationships. And of course, like it usually does, I began dating a man who was also in early sobriety, who was absolutely not for me. And God rest his soul, because unfortunately, he did not make it out of his addiction. Hmm. But I chose to navigate with this person. And where I used to have a heroin addiction, when I relapsed, I actually picked up methamphetamines this time. And where I thought that heroin and Percocet had taken my life, I didn't realize how much more I actually had to lose until I found myself completely homeless, strung out, living in a tent under a highway overpass outside of San Francisco, United Airlines. It was, you know, you wait again, you wake up one day and you're just like, how, like, how did this happen? It's interesting that that would be the defining moment for me because I have been kidnapped. I have been trafficked. I've been held against my will in a basement for nine weeks. I've been a missing person. I have been in so many disastrous situations where people would say, isn't that like your wake up moment? Wasn't that the thing that, you know, changed your mindset? Wasn't that your moment of saying, you know, I've had enough, but no. My moment where I felt that I had enough was I was in that tent with this man who was no longer here. And being so close to the airport, you would see the planes take off and land hundreds of times a day. And they are loud. They are deafening. And it almost feels like you can put your hand in the sky and, and touch it, pull it out. One night after being up for about three and a half days, I'm strung out, I'm, I'm tweaked out, you know, I haven't slept, my face is all picked out, my hair's falling out, my teeth are rotting, I haven't eaten in weeks, I'm drinking water from a spigot on the side of a, an industrial building, three blocks up the street, you know, I'm laying there in that tent, and here comes a plane, same plane I've seen a million times, right? But this time it was so loud that it actually rattled in my head, and then it went silent. 
And I'm telling you, as sure as I am sitting here today, I heard the words, there's a greater plan and purpose for your life, and it's not to die under this bridge. And I remember thinking, you know, I didn't believe in higher power. I didn't believe in God. I didn't believe in any of these things, but it made sense to me. Like, how was it possible that a young female with so many gifts and talents and, and accomplishments, going to the best schools, having all of these things that I've done all over my life, these parents who care for me, this wonderful life that they've provided. How is it possible that my legacy is to die an addict, like under this bridge? It just made absolutely no sense to me. And I think that knowing in that moment, just that tiny bit of credibility that there was something worth more in my life. I think that that was that small glimmer of hope where I said, hey, maybe this isn't all that there is. Maybe I'm not hopeless. And I'd love to say that I got on a plane the next day and I came home and I went into treatment and it was awesome, but I did it. You know, it, it took me eight, 12, 16 more weeks for me to finally come to grips, to call my, my parents back home and say, I think I've had enough. I'm ready, will you bring me home? And fortunately, they did. They actually took my childhood best friend. They flew her all the way out to San Francisco from Boston. She stayed with me for two days, which I'm sure was the two greatest days in hell for her. All right. I'm sure that they weren't great. And um, she flew me back. And I would love to say that that's when I got sober. But it wasn't. <laughs> it also wasn't how I got sober. You know, I came home to the same place, same people, you know, same location and still just not really wanting to be sober. And one night I had overdosed in my bathroom. I had a friend over. And although my friend was a user with me, I think that she understood that something greater was going on here. And I remember her banging on that door, like, Kiana, like, why aren't you answering me? Why aren't you answering? So obviously my parents heard it and they came down. And I remember waking up to my father, who has been my greatest support, my best friend. You know, at the time he was 76, maybe. And I just remember him slapping me repetitively in the face, just just trying to get me to wake up. Like this, these people have given their lives for a child that wasn't even theirs. And, and here I am, you know, killing myself. I couldn't understand why my parents were fighting so hard, why my friends were fighting so hard, why my mentors were fighting so hard for a life that I literally couldn't care about whether or not I lost. In fact, I used to pray in that tent every single night like, God, if you're up there, God, if you're listening, God, if you're real, will you please just let me die? Because this is misery. It was horrifying. It was horrible. Like, I had no will or desire to do anything. But for whatever reason, there was a small glimmer of hope that said, you know, this can get better. And even if I didn't know it, something in me believed it. Something believed that this was just the first step. And, you know, I had tried everything. I had tried you know, 12-step programs. I had tried like CBT. I had tried indigenous programs. The only thing that I hadn't tried was long-term and faith-based. So my parents had been nagging me about going to a specific program um, that is a faith-based program. It's it's widely known across the United States and all over the world. And so I, I decided that since it was the only thing I hadn't tried, I, I was I was going to give it a try. You know, how many times had I done 30 days? I'll tell you, nine times. I had been nine, nine rehabs at a minimum of 30 days each. And when I went into that program the first day, I was angry. I did not want to be there. Obviously, I'm looking at this saying, you know, 12 to 15 months, but probably 15 months that I was going to be in there. Yeah. 
And um, the director of the program, you know, brought to my attention. She said, you've done this so many times, you know, imagine if you had just done your nine months in one program, you'd be almost done at this point. And it seemed crazy and I started to get overwhelmed, but you know, she talked me down and she said, listen, you've done 30 days more times than almost we can count on two hands. How about we just take it for 30 days? And then she got a little bit straight with me. She said, any schmuck can do 30 days in any program. And I'm not thinking you're an idiot, are you? And so I, I took that as a challenge. I sized her up. I said, all right, I can give you 30 days. She said, we'll talk in 30 days and we'll reevaluate. So after that first 30 days, I came back and I had had a couple rough days, but that morning I was just in a great mood. I was having a wonderful time. I was acclimating to some of the girls in the house. And she said, you know, what do you think about another 30 days? So I agreed. I did another 30 days. And at the end of that 30 days, it had been three months. And she said, well, you know, at the time the program had five phases and the first phase was six months long. And she said, you're halfway through phase one. You might as well just commit to phase one. So I said, all right. And then by the time that, by the time six months came, I said, you know what? I'm, I'm all in. I didn't begin this to lose it early. You know, and there is something psychological about that. When you set your mind to something and you finish it, there's, there's a great sense of like personal joy that, that comes from that, you know, hard work that you put in. So I spent not 12, not 15, but 16 months in the program because I just couldn't seem to act right. (laughs) I still had a lot of those addictive qualities. You know, you can get sober in 30 days, you can get sober in 90 days, but the things, the behaviors and the ways that we learn to act and move for our survival, you know, these are survival instincts when we are in these types of environments. I didn't realize I didn't have to live like that anymore. You know, these people were confronting me on my behaviors, my dishonesty, unwillingness to share detail, you know, only giving a half truth because they only ask you a question, not talking behind people's backs or saying hurtful things about them. You know, every time I would do one of these things, I would be called out. And I didn't realize at the time that that was an actual proper demonstration of love, a demonstration of accountability. You know, you get sober, you get to be about 90 days and then you say, wow, I can do this. I can take on the world. Like I feel great. But then the emotions sink in at five months. Then we start to revert to some of those old behaviors. And and unfortunately, it takes a long time to really rid people of these addictive qualities. And and I give props to anybody who does this on their own. It doesn't have to go through a long-term program because that is a lot of self-control. It's a lot of self-discipline. And I, I really, really... I give accolades to that. For me, I needed to be in a place for 16 months where I could be corrected and I could have been given behavioral therapy. Why? Because I was living in a tent under a bridge. Like I had no respect for any person, anybody, anything other than myself. And you know, I was under this impression that I was a good person. (laughs) And obviously I wasn't. You know, I had a lot to learn, not just about myself, but about how to live a successful life. So after 16 months in the program, I graduated and I decided to stay on as a resident intern to serve some of the ladies who were just a couple steps behind me. So I did 16 months in the program and then I actually stayed for another 11 months serving there for a total of 27 months that I was in some type of inpatient, semi-partial program. And um, when that was done, you know, I, I was really sewn into by a lot of a lot of great leaders, encouraging people who are still in my life today, who have given their lives to see women set free as well. I chose at the end of that, that I wanted to go back to school. 
And at the time I was considering, do I go back for, you know, an MBA in the sciences, but I was not interested in science whatsoever. In fact, the only thing that I was interested in was sharing some of these horribly intimate and seemingly disgusting moments of our personal lives that people don't want to talk about. One of the things that was really, really encouraging to me was while I was in this program, I had an opportunity every single Sunday to go out to a different audience and to be able to share some of these personal moments of, of my story. And what was really incredible and what was actually pretty surprising week after week was I heard the same testimony from families, you know, why don't people talk about this? I have a son or a daughter or a brother or sister or, you know, an aunt, uncle, parent, grandchild who's struggling with addiction. Why haven't I heard about, you know, recovery? Why don't I get to hear people talk about recovery? And the truth is there's such a stigma out there. I mean, you jump on Facebook for two and a half seconds, you see that people are at each other's throats about some of the most menial seemingly insignificant things and when you talk about somebody's life or somebody who's an addict or somebody who's in recovery there seems to be almost a general consensus of either enabling or complete hatred and being able to go out there and say no look at my life like look at the story that i'm telling you look at the testimony that i'm displaying for you this is who i was you know when you think of addict addiction and you see movies on tv where you know people have their arms tied off And, you know, there's blood everywhere and they're living in a tent on a dirty mattress on the side of the road. That was me. I wasn't somebody popping pills. I wasn't somebody who was, you know, drinking and going to work every like I was strung out living outside, shooting up 40 times a day. Like I was the worst of the worst. I am what you call when you say the word addict. And people look at me today and they say, I could never imagine. Look at you. And I don't I don't see that. There is no repercussion. There is no physical evidence of anything that this is who you used to be. And that is the reason why I go out and I share. Since finishing this program, I, you know, I met my husband. My husband, Justin, is an incredible man. He is also a graduate of one of the same, the same program, but a different center that was for males in New Hampshire. He's a graduate of that program. He's a product of a household full of horrible abuse separation of different siblings, moving many different states, by all means, this man should be a crazy, crazy man. But he is the greatest gift that I have ever been given. So we met after we finished this program. I chose to go back to college. I got a degree in biblical theology with a concentration in pastoral ministry. It was another four-year degree. And I continued to travel all over the country and share these intimate personal details with people who need to hear that there is recovery. You know, when you have somebody struggling or when you yourself are struggling, it can feel so dark, so oppressive that there seems like there's no glimmer of light. But what I like to share with people is that, you know, outside right now, it has been raining for three days now. And people look outside and they say it's cold and, you know, it's dreary and, and it's gray. But the truth is, if you were in a plane and you took off that runway and you popped through those clouds, that sun is shining brighter than anything that you could ever imagine. This is just what we're seeing right now in the tangible. And my life has only progressed since making that choice to get something better for myself.
five, six, seven, eight years ago, I never imagined that one, someday I would want to get married, that two, I would be sober. Three, I would have not just one college degree, but two college degrees that I would have a beautiful daughter. My, my husband and I welcomed our baby girl last September. And she is the greatest, greatest blessing in our lives. Like she is incredible. And all of this, she is the legacy. She is the canceling of generational curses. You know, we both come from addiction, but here we have this beautiful baby girl who is the summary of everything that we have been through. She is the next generation. And that is why we we share. That is why we do what we do, because it, it is for us, but it's for the next generation to come forward, to have a boldness, to be secure in who they are, to understand that, you know, they're they're created with a purpose and they can change generations just by standing firm in, in who they are and what they believe. They can move the mountains that I was talking about at the beginning of, of this broadcast. They seem immovable, but when you raise somebody up in those ways to be bold, to be firm in everything that they believe, to know the testimony of their parents, to know where we came from and not to hide it, not to be ashamed, but to allow us to selflessly pour this into her, right? Maybe she'll be the next generation to stand up and and go out there and say those same things though that we want to convey. So the last six years have been incredible. And one of the things that I want to touch on is you had asked me at the beginning of this podcast, do I feel that my sobriety is in jeopardy today? I do not. I don't. I know that that may not be the case for many people who are listening to this, but I can genuinely and honestly say that I have never felt that my sobriety was ever in jeopardy. Why? Because I knew where I came from. I knew how horrible it was and I stay present. The reason why I go out there and I share all these things is because it reminds me of how far I've come. It reminds me of who I used to be. It reminds me that I don't know where I'm going, but to always seek better for myself. And it reminds me that any affliction can be overcome. Like, how do you come back from that? It seems impossible to come back from that, but I'm living evidence that it is possible. One of the things that, that I used to hear in 12-step meetings all the time, which would, would blow my mind, I, I just couldn't conceive it, is they would say, you know, my mother died two years ago and I didn't go back to drinking. My boyfriend or my husband that I was with for 20 years left me for another woman and I didn't go back to using. And I couldn't imagine at the time having a story like that and, and you know, not choosing to pick up. But something I want to share with anyone listening today is that, you know, there's a way around it. I am no stranger to grief. I am no stranger to loss. You know, my husband and I, we got married in July of 2018. And by September, we had lost not only five people close to us, including, you know, my mother, my stepfather, his grandfather, his brother, but we had also suffered a miscarriage as well. We had been waiting for many weeks. My mother was diagnosed as terminally ill. Now, mind you, I had shared that she, you know, was an addict most of her life. I didn't talk to her this whole time I was in my program. But when I came out, I I really felt the burden, you know, like a reconciliation with her. He be reunited in this relationship. And I found out that not only had she gotten sober over those three years, but she was a successful human being, that she was working an incredible job, that she was, you know, a woman of honor and dignity. She became an incredible person. And I got to spend a lot of time with that woman that that I probably never would have had she not become sick, had I not been through what I had been through, because now I understood I had empathy, I had sympathy for her situation. It was like I could relate to her, but I was able to spend all this time with her. And I found out that she was terminally ill. She was diagnosed with stage four glioblastoma, which is a rare type of brain cancer. I was at peace with that. I was totally at peace with it. But that season unfolded, it unfolded such as every time my phone would ring and I was excited 
expecting that she would have been the one who had passed. It was literally every other person. Something I also want to note was that the beginning that had kicked off this season a loss was we have a gas company out here called Columbia Gas, which was pretty prominent in the Northeast. Two years ago in our town, there were a series of explosions, gas explosions that took about five different cities, numerous houses, Fortunately, unfortunately, but also fortunately, there was only one person who had loss of life and it wasn't directly related to the explosions. But my husband had gone to work that day, had gotten a call that his brother, who was 29, had died suddenly. So he came home and we were sitting on the couch trying to console him and, you know, trying to, you know, love on him when state police showed up and said that we had to take nothing and get out of our homes. In fact, the house across the street from us was completely decimated, blew up totally decimated. So we lived in a hotel for nine weeks. That was where we got the news that my stepfather had overdosed, that we went out to Vegas to bury his brother, which was very sad. And then we came home, his grandfather had died. And then finally on my birthday, my mother passed away. So it was this long series of loss. And then as we're trying to begin this family, a couple of weeks later, we actually lose our first pregnancy. And I can truly, I share all of that just to tell you, I can truly 100% honestly say Never once did it cross my mind that I was ever going to go back to my former life because I knew that despite all of these things that were happening, this is our first three months of marriage. Okay. Like this is when people are fighting over what you're making for dinner and not doing the dishes. We're forced to really like join together and really stick by each other's side. Never once did it cross my mind that anything that was going on, any of the pain I was feeling was worth me going back for that momentary relief in my past. And now that I've lived it, I can understand that it doesn't sound so crazy. But anyone who's listening to this, you know, for whatever the reason is, maybe it's a loss of job, maybe physically not feeling good, chronic pain is real. You know, maybe you're experiencing some, some interpersonal issues with, with a spouse or a friend, whatever it may be, life is always worth choosing. And when you choose to go back time and time again, you are running the risk that, that you could die. And I'm not talking about overdose. I'm just talking about getting so far in that, you know, someday you just make the wrong decision. And so I share all of this just to say there is no hole too deep. There is no pit that is dug far, far too low. You can't be redeemed out of that. It's difficult. It's really, really hard. But when you surround yourself with the right people who will love you, and I'm not talking about a feeling of love. I'm talking about love you bring you up on your wrongs, encourage you with your rights. There is a portion in scripture that talks, everybody knows this. They say it at every single wedding. It's, you know, love keeps no record of wrong. Love is not selfish. It's not proud. It's not boastful. That really is what love looks like. It's a tangible thing, but sometimes it just doesn't always feel good. And I think the people, thank God for all of the people that came in who were able to freely so into my life when I couldn't even love myself. There are a lot of people who have gone before me who have made my life possible. The countless hours, the words that they've sown into me, you know, the encouragement they've given me, the rebukes that they had to give me when I wasn't right. And being able to be like humbled and to be able to receive that was, was life-changing. So if anybody's listening to this today, I know that you're understanding that I'm six years in and I don't, I don't take that for granted. Because I know that that can be taken from you at any point, at any moment. We should never get to a place where we're too proud, too boastful to say like, no, I need this sobriety every single day. But I want to encourage anybody who's listening that though I'm six years in, I'm just a couple steps out. This is the harvest of the seeds that I have sown for the last six years. And I've seen many as I've come. I have continued to plant, 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 plant. And I've continued to see harvest, harvest, harvest. 
The harvest that you're seeing and hearing right now is just a repercussion of what it was I've just planted. And you can begin to plant right now. You have no idea the implications of what you can sow into right this minute. It may seem small, but just waking up and choosing yourself today is another day of life, which is a harvest in itself that was not promised. I think that we take our lives for granted many times and we look at other people and say, wow, but look at all they've achieved. Look at all that they've come to. You know, I'm never going to be in that position. You can and you will. You absolutely can and you absolutely will. Your life is worth it. Find the right people. Take the steps to better yourself. Find something that makes you happy. Find a hobby, like read a book. For me, sometimes I just have to sit down and just read. That's how I found this podcast was I needed to take some time to decompress from something that was going on at work that I opened up my app. I decided to scroll Reddit. And here's the first thing that popped up was an encouragement to keep walking in this sobriety. You know, life is worth living. So if you're looking at this story and you're saying six years ahead and like that, that's so much to accomplish. Guess what? It hasn't been easy. I have had many failures along the way, but the thing is you're not going to see the failures because I'm only going to tell you about what's worth it. Those things don't matter. They made me who I am. But today my life is worth living. And so is yours. You can do this. You are worth it. You are loved above all measure beyond, beyond belief. And if you'll just take that first step, I guarantee you the the step from the other side will be taken towards you as well. Like you deserve your life and you are so worth it. Kiana, I am shook. You did, you are an amazing motivator and storyteller in exactly what this podcast needs. I thank you. Ooh, give me a second. Ah. I'm grateful. The only word I can use is that I am so grateful to have been given. You know, so many times we say like, they're a lost cause. Don't even bother. And you can have boundaries and you can love somebody with boundaries, but that's not love. And I, I am so appreciative of the thousands and thousands of times that people had to make a decision on whether or not I was worth supporting. And guess what? A lot of people to this day do not support me. And that's all right. That's okay. You know, they have that right. They have that choice and they don't need to forgive me for anything that I've done. But my life is a changed life and my life is the evidence And I will continue to speak on that. I will continue to persevere and share it with anybody who's willing to listen because this is the evidence. This is a life changed. I talk a lot about planting that seed as well. So I I love that you use that reference and you're talking about the mountain and maybe listeners hearing that we both have six years of, of sobriety. So we are on a similar path, but that started with the seed and that started with one day, one minute and a time that we were willing to be done. You can do it as well. If the last 20 minutes of listening to my new best friend, Kiana, doesn't motivate you to do so, keep listening. Thank you so much, Kiana. Really, truly, that was amazing. Tell me about your daily routine as it relates to your recovery. Are you a meditator? I know you said sometimes you just need to kind of take a moment and kind of restart 
What does your daily routine look like? Um, I will be very transparent in in what I believe is my my route in sobriety. I am heavily invested and engaged into a church. I have a wonderful church family. In fact, I had told you that the program I went through was faith-based. I did not really have a a general idea of belief before that. I I knew that the world and the universe are so much greater than any of us combined, but I, I never really had any type of personal integration, but I will be very transparent. I have a lot of respect for a 12-step program. And out of that respect, I always like to make it clear. I don't want to mislead anybody. I do not work a 12-step program. And I say that out of respect to anybody who is working a 12-step program. I respect the values. I respect the actual steps. And I do encourage the way that it is set up between the sponsor-sponsee type of relationship. But I do like to be transparent that although that works for a great number of people, it was not what worked for me. For me, I had to be completely set apart, closed out from society, like I said, for about 27 months where I did develop a relationship with God. And I am still heavily um, in servitude for the church in general. And when I went back to school, I got the degree in biblical theology and I stepped in as, um, which would be controversial against the board anyways, but I am a female pastor. (laughs) I am not the pastor of a congregation. I do not believe that's my call, but I do serve the church. And I do believe that that is the source of, of my sobriety. You know, I wake up every day grateful to, to God for choosing to allow me to continue this life. So a typical day for me, you know, I have a a nine month baby girl. She'll be nine months on Wednesday. Uh, I wake up, we're very early risers. My husband has a um, siding metal construction business. So I wake up, I usually do some type of devotion in the morning. I do read the word. Um, and then I spend a lot of my day with Phoebe, my little girl. I do serve at the church. I serve Tuesdays, Thursdays, many times three services on Sunday. I stay engaged. I do a lot of um, internet podcasting and such like that as part of a crew, part of a team. Um, but for the most part, I have been given the opportunity in this season, which many people don't, to be able to be a stay-at-home mom with my daughter. You know, I get to spend all that time with her. I, I get to watch her her first crawling and, you know, I try to get her to say mama, but all she wants to say is dada, how dare she. But, you know, I get to sew into this every single day and her life, like I said, is the evidence. This is what keeps me sober. Having that community, the community of, you know, like-minded people around me keeps me sober. Having my daughter keeps me sober. Having a healthy relationship with my husband, you know, being able to work through that keeps me sober. So really it's just the facilitation of what I feel is important. What are my priorities? And, and right now that's my family and my faith. What are you grateful for today? I love it when people ask me this because it, it forces you to be put on the spot to share about what it is right that moment. I think gratitude is something that changes every single day. You know, today, the first thing I thought when I woke up was I'm so happy that my back doesn't hurt. I have been having this nagging type of, you know, pain in between my shoulders. And that was the first thing I woke up this morning saying, wow, my back doesn't hurt. I am just truly grateful to be alive. I know that sounds very cliche and I'm sure people say things like that all the time, but really when it boils, when it boils down to it, I should not be here. These things that I'm talking about, how my life has progressed and, you know, all these, these gifts and things that I've been given, you know, my husband, my child, the the last six years, everything that, that has been entailed is only because I was given the mercy of waking up again this morning. So many others don't. 
almost everyone I know for the most part is dead. And I, I don't say that as an exaggeration. They're, they're pretty much all dead. A really sobering thought. And many times I've wondered, why would you take so many people, but you've allowed me to stay? And I'm grateful that not only was I able to wake up today, but I can choose to use my words to talk about this recovery. You know, I can choose to share this story. I can, I can spend another day, again, sharing these intimate details of my life just in hope that somebody else will hear it because this may be the last day that I have. We don't know. And again, I know that sounds so cliche, but like, you really don't know. We don't know what can happen today. We don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. This may be my last day that I breathe and there's no better way to spend it than thanking, thanking God that I woke up this morning and using my words to tell other people about the freedom that they can receive too. I know exactly why he chose to make you live through that and come out the other side a better person because you have the willingness to do things like this and share every detail of it and you shouldn't be alive. There is no physical, tangible, scientific reason that you that your body should still be thriving. Let's do kind of uh, any words of hope to leave our listeners with. Can you wrap it up for us today? I just want people to know that what you see isn't always everything that there is. You know, we we make a good spectacle of seeing things in the tangible. You know, we look at it from one perspective. We look at it from one, one mindset. And when we do that, many times all we see are the obstacles. You know, we look at things in the physical, but we don't look beyond that. You know, we aren't just physical beings. We are physical, mental, emotional, spiritual, and all of these things come together to encompass a life. But when we're stuck in a place like addiction, a lot of the time we're just gratifying what the body wants while negating what it is that our mind and our soul and our hearts are truly, truly are seeking. I would just encourage people not to just look at it with your physical eyes. You know, things, when we, when we look at things like that, things seem impossible. Like I said, you know, you look at the mountain and it's one large rock. It seems like it's just one big piece and it's, it's insurmountable and it's immovable but we're just looking with our, with our physical eyes. But if you start to break it down, you know, this large rock is made up of many, many different pieces. You know, you set a detonator, you set an explosion and you start to see these, these pieces crumble off in portions. And sometimes it takes many, many different rounds of explosives, many different types of explosives in in many different areas. But as you start to see little by little, by taking a different approach, rather than just staring at it and seeing the insurmountable, tangible what we believe evidence in front of us we realize that if you just take a different route about it if you start to look at things in a different way if you start to look for these back doors and and different means of how to get around this mountain you start to see that it's not just one immovable object there are portions and there are layers and if you attack it the right way they start to come crumbling down and i think that those pieces of dynamite are exactly what i said earlier they're your friends. They're the people who speak into your life. They're your hopes. They're your dreams. They're the testimonies that you're hearing like this. When you start to gain knowledge, not just sight, but knowledge, you begin to understand that things aren't always what they seem. You know, it may seem impossible. It may seem immovable, 
But when you start to gather the right facets of, of support that you need, you all work together. You know, all of these things encompass together, they work together, and they will do far more damage than anything if you just tried to do it on your own. You know, there's no shame in asking people for help. There's a reason why the first step of the program is admitting that you have a problem. For me, you know, shooting up 40 times a day, I couldn't admit that I had a problem. There was obviously a problem, but I had to get real with myself. I had to be honest with myself. And if you're going to be honest with yourself about the fact that you have a problem, then you have to be honest with yourself that there is room for recovery. Just because so many people lied to you and told you that you weren't worth it or that you would never be successful or this is all you were ever going to be or that you were a lost cause, just because people said that doesn't mean that that's the tangible evidence. That's just the mountain that was placed in front of you. The evidence is hearing the stories of other people who are like-minded, who are going to come along, come beside you, and who are going to tackle that with you to prove to you that not everything that you see is what it is. So I just encourage anybody who might be listening today, again, your life is worth it. If you have been filled with these lies from these voices from the outside, take a minute, blot them out, and ask yourself what it is that you want. What is it that you want? Because you don't want to be called these names by other people. You don't want to believe that your life has no purpose. You don't want to feel the feelings of hurt and insecurity that you've been feeling. What you want is to be a whole human being who has purpose, who is loved, and who is making ways for others, whatever that looks like. You know, I'm not talking about just in sobriety, you know, just whatever that looks like. Would you like to make the world a better place? Well, you deserve it too. A good life. And, and a good repertoire that you have isn't for other people. That's the mountain. It's for you too. You are no less than or no greater than anybody else. But again, you are no less than. You deserve everything that life has for you. All you have to do is reach out and grab it. And I know that step might be hard, but please understand that though the mountain tells you that you are not worth it, you absolutely are. And that's a feeling that you have inside you. Otherwise, you wouldn't be sitting here listening to this podcast. I can tell you that. So if you're looking for a word or if you're looking for that confirmation, this is your confirmation. You are worth it. Your life has purpose and meaning. And it's not to stay where you are. It's always to get better, better, better. Please don't look at my story or look at my progress. This is just meant to be an encouragement to you. Start with yourself today and say, I'm going to wake up today and I'm going to choose it today because I'm worth it. I am worth it. So, so very true. Well said. Thank you so much, Kiana. That brings us to the close of today's episode of the Sobriety Diaries. Huge thank you to Kiana and to everyone listening today. You can find us on Spotify and Google Podcasts at The Sobriety Diaries, youtube.com slash Nate Kelly, where we upload today's video podcast, and on Instagram at The Sobriety Diaries Pod, where you can register for our content creator bundle giveaway. Bounce on over to register. If you'd like to share your story with me, reach out at The Sobriety Diaries Pod at gmail.com. Check back soon for new episodes with new stories to tell. But until then, try your best not to drink and be good to yourself. Bye, friends.